You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty. Oh, to stimulate your thinking. You're listening. You're listening to Intellectual Erection. Intellectual, intellectual, intellectual Erection. Welcome back to Intellectual Erection. I'm your host, Patrick. Today I'm speaking with Madison Winter. You're listening to International... International. <laughs> ah, I wrote I-E like a dumbass. It's all good. Intellectual. International erection sounds International, good too. I like that even better, actually. That might be my tag. It's a mouthful. <laughs> so many, it sure is. So many ways of the word. <laughs> all right, here we go. Madison Winter was an investment banker who became a sex worker. So we talk about how all that happened. We talk about capitalism and sex work, the SESTA-FOSTA package of laws in the U.S. and how that affects Canadian sex workers and what's been going on on OnlyFans recently since the Bella Thorne fiasco. So there's a whole lot in this episode. It's not to be missed. And before we begin the episode, I just want to remind you that I am offering consultation services through intellectual erection you can set up a session with me i do have loads of experience in sex education communication and relationships polyamory kink bdsm i've done workshops lectures at universities and courses in college so if you are interested in setting up a consult with me we can discuss a whole bunch of things like relationship communication how to set up a scene the ethics of kink and polyamory and how to dom if you are a cis white man because there are a whole bunch of consensual boundaries that you should be informed about before you begin these sorts of practices with any level of enthusiasm. And also, please go to aesthetic.erection. That's my artwork that I launched maybe two weeks ago. It's been really nice to see everybody going there to support buying prints and sharing my art. So go there, get yourself a print. Share that stuff. It's all sex-positive art with inspiration drawn from the sex-positive communities and the humans that have inspired me to live my best life. So, as always, listen, subscribe, review, and most of all, enjoy. I'm sitting here today with... Madison Winter. Hi, Madison. How are you? <laughs> Hi. I'm great. How are you? Okay. Well, we've, we've been trying to do this interview since before COVID. Mm-hmm. And then we got, uh, you know, caught up with with everything, and now we're finally able to do this. I think the world was basically put on hold for gosh, a few months there. Yes, it was. <laughs> How have you been holding up? I've been good. I've been cooped up at home a lot of the time, but uh, I think pretty much everyone else has as well. So, just trying to resurface and see what the world looks like now. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> okay, so we can. Uh, well, actually, before we dig right into it, why don't you tell the listeners what it is that you do and what we're here to talk about? Sure. Um, I like to call myself a companion. I am a sex worker. Um, essentially, what that means is I see clients in person for escort uh, work. And I also do um, content. So I do digital media on a platform called OnlyFans. <laughs> a platform called OnlyFans. Some of you, you might to, be familiar with you that. You have to launch with that. Most people go, what? <laughs> what is OnlyFans? I think by today, everybody knows what OnlyFans is. I know, just, I'd hope so. <laughs> yeah, just because of, of 
all the the media around it, which we're going to talk a little bit about, because you are not unfamiliar to media. You've been on podcasts before. You've been interviewed by Vice, and you've had several other interviews where you talked about your experiences and your previous job, how you got into sex work, your niche, if you will, the girl next door niche. <laughs> and you've even discussed some of the SESTA-FOSTA issues from what I've seen. So we can touch on a little bit of all of those things. But first, the thing that I always ask my guests on this podcast is the origin question. Now, you can choose not to answer the first part of the origin question. It's a two-parter. The first part is really just if you remember when you were very young, the first time that you encountered sex or sexuality in the world, like when you realized that sex or sexuality exists in the world mm -hmm. and what that experience was. Um, that's a great question. I'm trying to think when the first time would have been. You know, I... It's funny, I actually grew up in a household where um, sex wasn't something we've ever shied away from talking about. Um, I, I remember seeing, um, you know, books on like sexual positions kind of scattered about the house, uh, which one could argue is, is good or and or bad, but um, it wasn't something that was ever really hidden. It wasn't something that I ever had to um, keep a secret. I was able to talk about boyfriends, etc. It sounds like, like sex was not something that was taboo. No, it wasn't. It wasn't something that was taboo at all. And I think um, because of that, uh, when I got exposed to the idea of the industry, it wasn't something that I was particularly fearful of or hesitant about. Now, the second part of the origin question is kind of how you got involved in the sex-positive communities. So I usually ask this question, what I mean by it is polyamory, kink, BDSM, sex work, all the roster of what constitutes sex positivity. I don't know exactly which areas you consider yourself a sort of member of the community of. I know that you're a sex worker, but I don't know if you participate in any of the other avenues of sex positivity. Mm -hmm. But then I, I'm curious how you got involved with that. Um, to be honest, I don't really partake in the rest of the communities. I, I always say I would like to, and then it just comes down to timing and availability and um, I have a lot of friends that are members of the kink community and the BDSM community, and occasionally I may go to their events or performances, but um, a lot of the times I just have other projects on my plate, and we just don't end up meshing up schedule-wise, unfortunately. Okay, so and then in that case, I guess the question would be more centered around how you got involved with sex work. I know that you were a banker before, and you left your vanilla job to pursue sex work. And this was the basis of, an, of a very sort of popular interview that you did with Vice. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how that happened for you. <laughs> it's funny. I, uh, so I, I put myself through school for business and finance and, you know, was kind of very ambitious about the whole thing and wanted to start a career on, you know, the Wall Street of Toronto, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, I did that. I, I launched a career. Um, I worked in banking. I worked in investments. I sold mutual funds and other investments. Um, and then I graduated into private asset management, and I was working with um, corporate corporate investments and um, mutual fund sales. Um, oh. And I did that for about six years, and I just couldn't quite put my finger on what was missing. If I'm 100% honest, I remember looking around, and I'm, you know, I'm sitting in my office on like the 27th floor, and you know, and I'm 
probably early 20s at that point thinking, okay, like this, this should be good, right? Like this, this is what I've wanted. And it just, it wasn't fulfilling. There were elements of it that were fulfilling. Um, I loved client relationships. I loved getting to know my clients and learning more about their birthdays and their kids and their, their dogs and their wives and, and their life events. And, and that I really gravitated towards. But the actual financial work was something that was kind of just a means to an end. So I kind of came across the idea of sex work somewhat um, organically, actually. And the idea of it was really intriguing to me. So I started dabbling in it a little bit part-time here and there as this kind of, you know, dirty little secret. And it, from there, it kind of blossomed. I just discovered, you know what, I, I think I might actually be able to make a living from this. This, this might actually be something that you know, is not only lucrative, but safe and rewarding and um, allows me to spend time on the things that I love and, you know, ignore the whole nine to five fluorescent light cubicle lifestyle, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like your vanilla job just wasn't cutting it for you, but it seems like there were elements of that vanilla job that were transferable to Mm -hmm. sex work, like the client relation aspect. Immediately when you said that, I thought, well, yeah, that's exactly what the majority yeah. of sex work is, right? That Absolutely. emotional labor and the the engagement with, with your clients. And that's what I've noticed is I think the reason I got into finance in particular was, you know, I, I wanted something that was stable. I wanted the stability, as most people do. We go to school, you know, we, we want that career and the house and et cetera, et cetera. But what I noticed was it, it was the people that was keeping me there. Um, I really enjoyed chatting with my clients. Um, I would go to events and shake hands and I would remember details like, oh, so-and-so got a divorce last year or so-and-so's son got accepted into college. And the relationships would kind of snowball to the point where they may be calling me and saying, hey, you know, I know this isn't your job, but can you walk my friend through or my son through you know, school applications or student loan applications or he has a question about X and I know that's not really what you do. And I loved that. I loved the the rewarding feeling of being part of these people's lives and and the milestones that occurred within them. So when I gravitated towards sex work, it was entirely the exact same conversations, just over a dinner table instead. So you said earlier that you got into sex work somewhat organically while you were working in the financial district. Mm -hmm. Do you care to elaborate a little bit more on that? Or is <laughs> that course. something that's uh, that's too taboo? No, no. It's actually kind of funny. Um, I had gone through a breakup at the time. And, you know, it was one of those, like, hurrah, independent woman moments. But um, <laughs> also, I, it was mostly through media. You know, I started watching a lot of movies, like Pretty Woman. And, you know, there was Secret Diary of a Call Girl, which was a London TV show that I watched. And I think I saw this other TV show called Sugar Babies. And it, it just kind of ended up steamrolling one after the other after the other. And I thought, oh, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, tell me more. How do, how do I find out more about this? Is this in Toronto? Is this here? And, you know, sure enough, it was. I thought that this was in some faraway, you know, wealthier, mythical land. And no, it was just right here at home. Sex work existed. The demand for it existed. And I just, it blew my mind. So I immediately had to, you know, dive down the internet rabbit hole and find out more about it well i have a feeling you're not going to be able to answer this question but this is what i wanted to ask as you were speaking is did you manage to 
convert any of your financial district clients into <laughs> your new work. You know what's funny? They tried. <laughs> And you refused. I did, yeah, I did. You know, it, it it would have just been way too awkward, but it took about a good six to eight months before people started realizing what I did. Um, when I left the financial world, people asked me, oh, you know, where are you going? Like, what company are you moving to? Because it's a very small, small sphere, rather. So people tend to stay within the same group of companies. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving to a, a private firm and <laughs> friend's company or something. And, and, you know, after about the course of, you know, six to eight months, people started going, oh, there she is. Okay, that makes more sense. (laughs) (laughs) They figured it out. Uh, And I started getting emails from colleagues and clients. Um, No bosses, unfortunately. I would would have been down for that one. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you could get like the the 1%, you're like, okay, we can can convert those ones. But they did. They emailed me and they went, oh, my God, Maddie, is that you? And I'm like, yep, yeah, yeah, hi, this is me. Like, I never denied it. Um, and they were like, oh, like, maybe maybe we could get together. And I'm like, you know what? No, but here's my friend. Like, you might like her. <laughs> Be- and the reason why I said no is because early on, I still was very clear that I wanted clients that I could see long term. I didn't want the one-off, you know, quick, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am kind of client. Like, I wanted someone I could connect with and grow with and get to know better and see frequently. So it... You know, for me, it would have been, or for them rather, it would have been a novelty, and I just I didn't want that experience. So, right. So you were yeah. you were interested in 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 the long term for this? Yeah, I didn't really want to be the fun, exciting story that they told their bar buddies three years from now. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. No thanks. So it sounds like you're pretty out in mm-hmm. terms of your work, and I want to say, was it uncomfortable when you? when you came out as a sex worker for friends and family, and I assume that most people now know what you do because you're so visible on media and pretty open about what you do. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because originally I was not. Um, when I started this, everyone said, you know, you have to hide your face. You you have to hide any, you know, visible hints in the background as to who you may be in your photos. You, you have to hide your voice. Um, very, very discreet. All about discretion. And, I, you know, I kind of got to thinking about this and I thought, okay, well, who am I hiding from? You know, like, surely my friends and family will be okay with it. So let's just come out and see what happens. And that's kind of what I did. I, I started being more vocal in the media and um, I appeared in a Vice documentary, um, a written documentary rather, about sex work. And that was one of the first photos of my face. And it was just me, you know, sitting at home with a cup of tea, you know, looking very wholesome. And uh, (laughs) this article ended up making its way across all of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat, and it even made its way into the UK. And I started getting calls from friends and family, calls from siblings and friends that I went to high school with and old colleagues. And they went, oh my God, is this you? And that was, that was kind of it. I was like, yep, I might as well keep rolling with this being out thing. (laughs) So aside from the initial shock of friends and family, were any of them supportive and encouraging of what you've decided to do? You know what? Almost all of them. And I really didn't expect that at all. I thought it was going to be the other way around. There, There were a couple people that kind of needed some massaging and some convincing, so to speak. Um, I think they heard the term sex worker and thought, oh my God, you know, are, are you okay? They assumed all of the negative stereotypes that come along with that word. They assumed that I may be under the influence of something. They assumed that I may be coerced in some way. 
and I kind of went, no, no, like it's, it's a company. Like I, I own a corporation. I run my own business. Like I do all of the marketing, all of the client seeing everything. Like it is a full fledged operation and I love it. And they went, Oh, tell me more. Like, can I do that? (laughs) Can I do that? (laughs) Oh, every time. Can I do that? Like, is there availability for men? Like, (laughs) it is, you just might not be getting as much, uh, action if you will. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Well, then I want to ask you, because you've been on various media outlets talking about sex work, mm-hmm. it's a, this is a form of advocacy for sex work and for mm-hmm. sex workers. So I'm curious what your advocacy looks like. Essentially, it's just me being incredibly vocal. The way I look at it is so many of us are forced to hide our identities. And, and that may be for various reasons. It may be for families or legalities or children or what have you. But We have to hide our identities based out of stigma, out of how people may react and what we may lose because of that. I'm one of the few that doesn't really have a whole lot to lose. So I have the privilege of being outspoken and the privilege of being out. And so I think that I may as well use that to the community's advantage and say, hey, look, sex work isn't that bad. It's actually not what you think it is. It's wonderful. Because not any of us, not not many of us, rather, can actually stand up and say that without fear of some sort of retribution, or we lose our homes, or you know, our marriages. So, like, I'm I'm very fortunate that I'm able to kind of get out and say these things. And you know, I always have to put that with a side note that says that my experience in sex work isn't always representative of the community as a whole because I do have a lot of privilege that that comes with my business. But I think it's still helpful to have whoever we can be outspoken about it um just to help shape and change that stigma absolutely and i think that it's um it's good that you discuss openly the idea that you as a white woman have a certain Mm -hmm. amount of privilege that many other sex workers might not so the most marginalized people Mm -hmm. in sex work would probably be black trans women Mm -hmm. and you know there's all sorts of intersections in Mm -hmm. sex work of marginalization and as you mentioned, reasons why some people can't come out and cannot have their identity associated with their work because it's not safe for them. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'd want to ask you, and maybe you already partially answered this, is how can sex workers like you who are able to use their privilege for advocacy through their platform Mm -hmm. help marginalized sex workers? I think it's important that when we're talking about our own experiences to really preface with the caveat that it's not representative um that you know there are other communities within sex work who you know may struggle um with you know a whole bunch of things but also in terms of our social media like i try to make a point to really promote these women and and men rather and you know really you know give them a platform so that more eyes are exposed to them and just try to elevate them in ways that they may or may not have been seen before. Um, And when I am talking to the media, I really try to, like I said, emphasize that, you know, it's important to not only talk to me, but talk to the marginalized folks as well, if that it's, if it's safe for them to do so. So let's switch tracks a little bit. I'm curious from your perspective, what you think it takes to be a good sex worker? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) everyone will give you a different answer i i mean in my opinion though i i I think it's a few things i think that empathy 
is is a huge one. Um, I have met a lot of sex workers that think that, and, and the thing is, I, I should backtrack on this. You can have, be any kind of sex worker, but I think that regardless of what kind of sex worker you are, I think empathy is huge because while sex is a big important component of this, having like the EQ and the empathy towards your client and to really understand where it is they're coming from and what it is they're looking for is something that's going to be able to help you to fine tune your skills and better deliver what it is that that client wants. So empathy is huge. I think you really have to like people. And I joke about this because they catch me at the morning and I'm like, I don't like anybody. But <laughs> Not until I have my coffee. Not until at least 10 a.m. But <laughs> you have to like people and you have to have an innate curiosity about people. And, I, and I'm really lucky because I learned that through my finance experience. And had I not have experienced that, I wouldn't have known. But you have to really be curious about people and, and curious what makes them tick and, and how their brain works and how they look at the world differently than you. Because your job is to relate to a mass amount of people on an individual, incredibly personalized level. And how do you do that if you're not watching and learning and taking notes and figuring out, okay, you know, how is Joe different than Bob? How does he see the world differently? So you have to be really finely tuned in, in so what I'm looking for, watching and, and, and listening, so to speak, you know? Yeah, it sounds like being perceptive in, uh, in sex work is is an important aspect of engaging your compassion and humanity with your clients, mm -hmm. which is actually something that I've heard from other sex workers as well. You have to approach the work with a sense of humanity and compassion mm -hmm. because that is what's going to make your clients feel like they're being taken care of. Because at the end mm -hmm. of the day, this is a sort of relationship that you're mm -hmm. building or having with a client, and it's not for them only transactional mm -mm, it's not and i really argue that even the shortest of bookings are not transactional each person that you meet you really have to approach with a sense of compassion and learn about them and learn about what they're after because it is i, I always tell my clients like we are in a relationship we are dating that's how i look at it it's just it happens to be an unconventional relationship and so if I was meeting my partner for the first time, I would ask questions. I would want to know, like, how do they think? Where did they go to school? Like, what are, what are their religious beliefs? What are their backgrounds? And kind of uh, figure out ways to bridge the gap and connect because it's not just about, you know, dollars exchange, services exchange. It's so much deeper than that. Right. So this idea of the work itself being transactional has made me want to ask this question, and it might be a tough one to kind of chew through a little bit, but I'm curious if you have some, some thoughts about this, is do you think that sex work is inherently capitalistic or do you think that there's something about sex work that might be subversive to capitalism? I mean, it's really difficult to say because everybody's experience is so different, but I, I think that in a sense it is a little bit capitalistic because it's, it's an entrepreneurial business. It's people building a business how they see fit. I could be a dominatrix. I could be a submissive. I could be a fin dom. I could be a girl next door companion. Like I'm building my business exactly how I want and attracting clients exactly how I want. So there's there's a freedom in that. The reason I ask this usually is just because sex work continues to be in a legal gray area. So because it's not legalized, and I know that you know, sex worker campaigns are pushing for decriminalization over legalization. And I've touched on this many, many times throughout uh, my interviews with, with sex workers. And the reason for that is because 
sex workers want to maintain their autonomy over their bodies and over their business rather than sex work becoming legalized in which case the state will begin to impose sanctions on the bodies of sex workers and their finances and their safety mm -hmm. so because it exists in this legal gray area I would argue that it might be subversive to capitalism it still uses the tools of capitalism in order to build that persona and to build that business and to sell the work the labor but at the end of the day you maintain a level of autonomy over your labor and over your identity and your body that is not representative of the free market in that it can't be commodified Mm -hmm. right you can't really have sponsorship you ha you can't have corporate investment in the same way because of the legal gray area you maintain a level of freedom that doesn't exist in the in the so-called free market which is a, a little bit uh, absurd to say but essentially when when you have something that is a product and you put it into the free market it becomes commodified over time and you you can't help that process yeah, absolutely. Beca because it's legal, right? But in the yeah. legal gray area, that can't happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you'll see a lot of advocacy workers saying things like, we don't want it legalized. We want it decriminalized. Right. We want to exist in our in our work and we want to exist in our sphere and in our industry, but we don't want to be persecuted, right? So absolutely. we don't necessarily want the government stepping in and saying, this is how much you can charge. This is your limits. This is This is your licensing rights. Like, we don't want any of that. We want workers to be able to work and see their you know see their clients and feed their families without worrying about going to jail that's it <laughs> absolutely and this is why i i've been building this argument that uh sex work is subversive to capitalism because you don't have those restrictions that you would normally have in the in the free market that takes over your labor and turns you into a commodity that mm -hmm. is not within your autonomy to control. And I think we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but that's actually what's happening right now. So with OnlyFans and them controlling how much we can or cannot charge for our product, that's it's already kind of starting. So I think anytime that sex workers are, you know, under the under the guise of a, a, a platform or another company, that's exactly what happens. So I think that the you know, we really need to look at this industry as you know, some sort of entrepreneurial line of work where we need to control our rights and our product and our and our autonomy to in order for it to be successful. And absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've had uh, sex workers that have said sex work is a matriarchy, mm -hmm. and within it there is this nexus of, of freedom and bodily control over sexuality, pleasure, and the the selling of your labor. Now. It's good that you brought up OnlyFans because there was the, the recent fiasco with Bella Thorne joining OnlyFans as a celebrity and basically using that platform to make over a million dollars in selling what I've been told, but I haven't verified this, I've been told that she sold the idea of nudity <laughs> and the actual content wasn't explicit when people went to... Mm -hmm. To invest in it and then it created this backlash and people wanted their money back and then all these sanctions started appearing on OnlyFans as to how much you can charge and mm -hmm. uh, I think you know more about this than I do so what well, you essentially you essentially hit the nail on the head that's exactly what happened so we don't exactly know specifically what she said but that's the understanding is that she was offering content that was heavily implied um, to be nude content and it wasn't and it was expensive and people bought it of course and there was yeah a bit of a, a bit of a solid backlash. I think it was 
tens of thousands of dollars that they requested in refunds back from OnlyFans. And so the company went, you know, now what? Let's let's cap this so that this doesn't happen again. How do you how do you feel about that as as somebody who's been in the industry for well I don't even know how long I didn't ask about, you that's okay about four years now actually okay which is crazy I can't believe it's been four years wow but uh, <laughs> like when has the time gone <laughs> and yet I haven't aged a day no <laughs> <laughs> hardly um, you know it's because on one hand, I, I understand what they've done. I understand why they're doing it. It makes sense to me from a business perspective. I get it. And then on the other hand, I think about the pandemic. And I think about how so many sex workers, especially marginalized ones, are not seeing clients. We can't see a volume of clients right now. It's just not safe. So I think about all the people that have expenses that I don't have, like children or elderly parents or what have you and I think about those people that have turned to OnlyFans as a way to sustain their livelihoods and to be told ah you know what you can make 50% of what you made before tough like I just it it does it grinds my gears a little bit it feels wrong it feels inherently wrong to tell somebody what their labor is worth especially if a market is dictating otherwise and then it reduces that autonomy to basically control your enterprise, if you will. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the thing is, like, there's not a whole lot we're able to do about it. Our hands are tied. And I think this is, you know, one of the first experiences where sex workers have gone, oh, my gosh, we can't control what our product is worth, what our services is worth. We can't control what people are willing to pay for it anymore. It's, it's entirely in the control of this platform. So you have people scrambling, and rightfully so. So then I guess this would be an indication of what sex work would look like, I guess, if it's legalized. I almost want to say regime, but that seems way too <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but it's almost. <laughs> well, if, if sex work were legalized, yeah. then this is what it could look like, is the, the imposition of these sort of uh, sanctions. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you as the sex worker would have far less liberties than your clients. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the thing is, with Sestin Fosta, that already is almost the case. Like, when these two laws came in, and I'll elaborate a little bit, so I have to dig deep into my brain here. I think Sesta is, um, you might want to help me with this, Patrick. It's, uh, oh my gosh, stopping... Oh, the, the, yeah, what the acronym, the acronym. stands for. I yeah. always forget the acronym. I, I don't remember the, the thing. <laughs> Every but, time. but yeah, SESTA-FOSTA <laughs> are yeah, the laws in the U.S. that basically prevent you from mm -hmm. uh, you know selling or mm -hmm. advertising explicit sexual content online. or anything for the purpose of yeah selling things with sex or sexuality online. Mm -hmm. So it, basically it changed the laws because before e-companies, so to speak, and online platforms were allowed to say you know what that's our content creators that's that's our users that's not us you know we're not on the hook legally for that we have no idea we just provide the website they do what they like so essentially what happens is it changed the law so that now the companies and the websites are on the hook and they can be persecuted legally for inappropriate or sexual content so what happened was you saw a lot of websites where sex workers were using as advertisements shut down altogether. They just, they washed their hands of it and they said, you know what, no more. But yeah, what happened was that with that is what we're left with a ton of different, or sorry, we're left with a lot of, um, a lot less options and people are kind of looking around going, you know, now, now what, now where do we advertise and now where do we, we find our clients and yeah, 
Well, I did want to touch on on the SESTA-FOSTA package of bills, if you will, because I'm curious how this affects Canadian sex workers. And I did pull up the uh, the acronym here, so we can <laughs> we can elaborate. It's in uh, the back of my brain. I know. Yeah, it's I mean, <laughs> who 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 remembers these acronyms, anyways? Yeah. So as long as we know what they what they mean and how they affect us, oh, anyways, nice. SESTA FOSTA. So SESTA stands for Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. There it is. Yeah, and then FOSTA is Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. So, as we know, the intentions of these acts were to prevent human trafficking online. And the idea was that if you can't advertise sex online, then this would stop the sex traffickers from being able to sell humans. And sounds good on paper kind of deal. But because there's already an existing market of sex workers that have been doing things, have have been doing this work for years and have been trying to build up their their business this has gravely impacted their ability to advertise their work and having a sweeping legislation like this that just cuts off any kind of advertising for sexual services online is overkill because not necessarily does it even work to stop sex trafficking per se right there's always the deep web there's always right? Ways to get around things online. And how do we know? Because even sex workers can still find ways to advertise online. So people who are involved in criminal activities like human trafficking, they have the know-how and the ability to continue their business in ways online and on the on the dark web. And I don't know that this legislation is actually doing the work that it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And clearly what it's doing is affecting primarily the work of sex workers absolutely and i and i really struggled to wrap my brain around whether or not that was part of the intended direct results like was that something that they intended to do i hear a pupper in the background yeah he just came in to say hello hi <laughs> hi Douglas. well i'm curious because sesta fosta is primarily it, it is in the states i'm curious how that affects canadian sex workers Oh, absolutely. So, thankfully, most of it didn't. But it did in the same breath. So what happened was a lot of the websites that we we advertise on, like, for example, Backpage or I think the Craigslist personal ads or um, there was another one called, I think it was Rent Boy. Um, A lot of those platforms, like I said, they just shut down overnight, gone. Um, I have friends that specifically advertised on Backpage and now they're like, oh, now what all of the other websites are based in the u.s that we use twitter u.s website right all of the social media platforms u.s based my web hosting company u.s based so what's to say any of these you know web hosting companies or social media platforms are going to say that's selling sex goodbye so basically everything online that we rely on is all hosted in the u.s whether or not i'm in canada or not Right. So those same sanctions will apply to your ability to advertise Mm -hmm. because the websites will be predominantly U.S.-based. And the problem with that is that if we can't use the Internet, where do we go to find clients? This this was the argument, right? Like, SESTA-FOSTA will push sex workers back onto the streets where it's the most dangerous. Exactly. And so the thing is, with the Internet, we're using it for screening. You know, we're, we're weeding people out. We're looking at their LinkedIn's. Are these people 
Do they exist? Do they have a verifiable social media or otherwise presence? Um, do they seem unsafe? Can I get personal information online, perhaps a driver's license, perhaps something like that to say, okay, this is a bit, you know, a, a bit safer, so to speak, going in. If I'm on the street, how do I do all that? How do I, how do I verify them? How do I, you know, do the behind the scenes work? You can't. So you're, you're forced to see clients that may or may not be safe and you're getting put in this precarious position. So it's just, it's really unfortunate. Absolutely. And I think that the argument here from some might be that, oh, well then if we legalize sex work, that will solve the problems of safety. Mm-hmm. No, that's the thing is, is no one has been arguing for it. It sounds really sexy to be legalized. What I do is legal. It's just, and it, it does, it sounds really enticing. And it's just, like you said, so many problems come along with that. And all we really need is it just not to be criminalized. So. Yeah, I mean, sex workers yeah. have been pretty good at doing their own screening Absolutely. and managing their safety. And there mm-hmm. are agencies out there that do that as well. Mm-hmm. And so long as decriminalization is in effect, then you, you do have the protection of the government and mm-hmm. you do have the ability to engage in that work and then potentially also apply for housing and mm-hmm. insurance mm-hmm. and all sorts of things where you could declare, yes, I'm a sex worker. It is not a criminal activity. Therefore, mm-hmm. I can, you know, also start my own pension plan and, and mm-hmm. plan my future and do all of the human things that most people do <laughs> who work. Have a bank account, work. have a yeah. credit card. Yeah, I specifically my friends in the U.S., I see this all the time. They'll, they'll log into their bank account one day and it's, it's shut down. You know, the bank account they've had since they were 12 years old, just gone, you know, credit card, gone. Yeah. What about uh, what about the money in those accounts? Is it gone with the account itself? As far as I know, I think it's like a long process that they have to apply for Jesus. it and request a check back to some other bank account, which how are they going to get one? Right. But it's a real problem. Like, you know, fundamental human rights like housing and, and safety are taken away from these people just because of their chosen line of work. And it's... It's just not right because when you actually start digging into the line of work, there's, it's there's nothing, there's nothing illegal. There's nothing seedy. There's nothing. It's this very wholesome exchange that I think is really beautiful, and it just strikes me as so odd that the stigma and the legalities around it are the opposite of my experience within it. You know? Yeah, people I don't think understand the importance of sex work because. No sex and pleasure is not accessible for everybody and not Mm -hmm. everyone is physically able or mentally able or emotionally able to engage in relationships with people in the way that maybe we some of us take for granted but it's interesting because when you look at it we're kind of commodifying love and i think that's why there's so much turmoil over sex work because what we're selling is love that's kind of how i look at it like i love my clients and it's not it's not fake it's not you know it's it's not something that's fabricated but we do we we sell human emotion and we sell you know the human experience of being desired and wanted and loved and 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 sexual pleasure and emotional pleasure and intimacy and all of those things wrapped together is what sex work is so the second you put a price tag on it, I think it gets really complicated for law officials and and politicians, and and that's where we find ourselves today. Going, you know, how how do we how do we safely sell this, and how do we safely do what we're doing? 
Well, that's uh, that's the point, right? Yeah. The point is that you are offering a service that is important to a lot of people. It's intangible too. Like it's yeah. an intangible service. So. And it's not always accessible to everyone for free. Yep, exactly. It's, you know, some people do want to have that control. They want to be able to say, okay, I'm going to pay for this service and I'm going to receive, mm-hmm. you know, pleasure, intimacy on negotiated terms with somebody who's there for me and who does this sort of work and is able to facilitate my needs versus I'm going to go and try to meet somebody in the real world who I'm too shy or my body's not able or, you know, I, I can't deal with the uh, the anxiety. Whatever it is, there, there's some people who just cannot engage in these sorts of relationships or don't want to. And that choice should be available to them to seek pleasure, intimacy, relationships through sex work. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I'm actually just kind of scrolling through Google right now because I can't remember which country was doing this, but I want to say one of the Swedish countries. One of the, uh, Nordic it's always countries, the Nordic rather. countries. It's always the Nordic. So one of them um, <laughs> was actually, I think it was one of them, was subsidizing sex work. Yeah, for I heard specific, about this too. Yeah, 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 for specific individuals. And I, I think they were um, individuals with... Um, like mental limitations or um, yeah. in wheelchairs yeah. or something along those lines. But they, they were actually subsidizing these men to see sex workers. And I thought, oh, my God, how amazing is that? Absolutely, because right, sexual surrogacy is important for mm-hmm. a lot of people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And that could mean invisible disabilities, physical disabilities, mm-hmm. all sorts of things that would prevent somebody from being able to access, mm-hmm. you know, love, romance, sex, intimacy, Mm-hmm. And yeah. it makes this work important in those ways. But it's also important that this work exists in general. Like we mm-hmm. don't have to excuse it as it's only no. a service. You know, it, it's only important in this way. It's important that this work exists because it is a very old, mm-hmm. ancient, if you will, form of <laughs> labor. And there's always been a demand for it. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a demand for human intimacy. It's not a need that comes and goes. It's something that we need throughout our entire lives. I know clients that are 21 and I know clients that are 79. And guess what? They all needed human intimacy. They all needed a loving touch. So why is this something that we just think is going to go away at some point? Absolutely. You know? Well, then this brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you. What is your plan for the future and if you weren't doing sex work what would you be doing i mean like i said i was in finance and i was looking around going hmm i don't love this but i've talked to so many people who are in careers and you know what they don't love them so i probably would have ended up staying um, just for the financial security and you know the consistency and that nine to five schedule but I keep thinking about my future as I'm nearing year five in sex work. And I think, God, I love this so much. I have no desire to leave. But I I can see me kind of slowing down and perhaps getting more into writing and and advocacy work and uh, maybe even some sort of consulting, something along those lines. Like I do find myself really enjoying working with other sex workers specifically and meeting other sex workers and helping to change people's opinions on what sex work is. Because the more people I talk to, even in my personal life, like I, I'll go to the grocery store or whatever and someone or a clothing store and someone will casually say like, oh, what do you do? And I can look them dead in the eye and say, I'm a sex worker. <laughs> 
And uh, I, I'm really enjoying that. I'm really enjoying watching people's perceptions of a specific industry as a whole change before my eyes. Like that's something that I'm finding really rewarding. So I think leaning into that long term is, is absolutely a, an option that I could see myself pursuing. Again, going back to the idea of having this this privilege mm -hmm. and the ability to advocate and a voice and a platform and being mm -hmm. affluent and being able to mm -hmm. reach that sort of group of people that would be skeptical and to be mm -hmm. able to kind of change their minds mm -hmm. is, a, I think, an important aspect of this going forward. You, you know, what you're doing here reminds me of what uh, my friend Andrea Warehun is also doing. Mm -hmm. She wrote the book The Modern Whore. Mm -hmm. I was literally just unpacking my bookshelf yesterday and went, oh, yeah, hung that up in a prominent place. <laughs> I figured you must have had this book and read Everybody it. Everybody has mean, it. <laughs> right? So I, I think she's she's doing the same thing, right? She's yeah. she's using her privilege and her writing skills and her education mm -hmm. and being affluent in order to highlight the voice and the needs of sex workers, not only like herself, but of the, the people that she's worked with as well. Mm -hmm. it, the thing is, it's starting a conversation. And the conversation, like Andrea, often starts about me and her, and then it kind of morphs into the industry as a whole. So yep. it's starting a conversation about, you know, what is this? How does this work? Or how are people affected? How are people living? You know, and, and I think just having a conversation about it is the most important thing. Because every time I do some sort of media um, program or outreach, I get half a dozen emails saying, oh my God, I, I heard that radio show. I heard that podcast. I had no idea. And part of me goes, how, did, how, how have you lived this long? And not <laughs> but there's, there's still people that are just totally in the dark about sex work in Canada. And they have no idea that it even exists or what it looks like. And they're stuck with these old, you know, patriarchal beliefs of what it looks like. And it always rocks their world when they realize that's not the case. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really fascinating to watch that unravel in front of you. Yeah, removing some of the, the filth and the dirtiness that surrounds mm -hmm. the idea of sex work and the taboos. I, think I mean, is I want to keep some dirtiness, but... Well, no. yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, Just the, a the good kind of filth and the good kind of dirty, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the seediness or or just, <laughs> you know, showing that the that sometimes there is a beauty in that seediness. Uh -huh. You know, I think that's what uh, a lot of what Andrea does actually is she just kind of plays on the seediness and the, mm -hmm. the, the filth and is like, yeah, there's something erotic and sensual mm -hmm. and beautiful about this seedy business, but mm -hmm. it's not dangerous, No. right? I mean, it is dangerous to sex workers, but mm -hmm. it's not dangerous. Are, its existence but, isn't yeah. dangerous, you know? No. It Clients are fucking dangerous. dangerous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and the fascinating thing, that's a perfect word to describe it, is, is the eroticism and the sensuality behind it. Because, like, I've met clients with very specific kinks. And, you know, it, it's kind of beautiful because they, they come up to you. And if I were to tell one of my civilian girlfriends, like, oh, so-and-so. Civilian. How I, my civvy friends. You know? <laughs> Your civvies. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Right? That, you know, so-and-so had a golden shower fetish or a... Or a um, submissive fetish and there's a gentleman that i know actually that wants to come clean my house this week and that's the booking he's just yeah. gonna clean my house <laughs> which i'm about <laughs> but like if i were to tell my girlfriends this they would go oh like really like i don't know i don't think i could do that but when you when you realize the place of beauty that this comes from and the place of vulnerability that it comes from this is someone that's trusting you with their deepest darkest secret and desires and they feel safe enough and vulnerable enough to let you see a part of them 
that they keep hidden from the rest of the world. And I think that's just so touching and sensual and, and yeah, erotic as well. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. There's actually, if I could, shout out one other person similar to Andrea. She's in Australia, and this is someone I, I look up to quite a bit. Her name is Samantha X. Yeah. Um, and she has written two books as well, and I read both of them cover to cover. And incredible, incredible writer, uh, incredible advocate. I believe she now owns an agency and a consulting service as well. Um, and she's a woman who I believe is in her mid-40s. She's a mother. Um, and she, in her novels, she talks a lot about the humanity of sex work and how even working in a brothel, the kind of experiences and conversations that she was having and how you would take this incredibly seedy experience and behind closed doors, it's not the case at all. So you know, that was another great example of someone kind of spreading that message. Yeah, the genuine human interaction. Mm-hmm. Well then, yeah. I think we've covered a lot. <laughs> we um, and before I let you go, there's, uh, you know, the last thing that I usually ask on this show is if you have a fun, wild, outrageous, or sexy story that you'd like to share. You know, something did actually come to mind. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> there you go. Um, I have a regular client who I see probably every two to three months, and I just adore this person. And I'm finding that as our relationship is unfolding and continuing to develop, um, we're becoming more and more comfortable with each other and more and more open to exploring different kinks and different fetishes. And um, our sessions have gotten more exciting as a result of that. So one example I can think of in particular was we brought in a, uh, a second companion who um, is very much... Uh, uh, Domin- I don't want to say dominatrix, it's the wrong word, but she's very much a, a dom sort of person. Like she's got that energy to her and it's fantastic. It's enthralling if you're in her presence. And between the two of us, we, we insisted that our, our gentleman cook us dinner. And yet we insisted he wear a, a women's outfit while he did that. So we put him in stockings and we put him in a little mini skirt with all the frills. And <laughs> I think we even made him wear like a, a sexy little choker as well. Just the whole nine yards, the whole lingerie stockings vibe. And he cooked us dinner and he waited on his hand, his foot. And then afterwards, when things got into the bedroom, we um, we demanded that he give us foot massages. And, <laughs> and things, of course, kind of escalate. But it was uh, really exciting and really naughty and really erotic to kind of push somebody out of their comfort zone and watch their eyes light up with excitement and just explore the dynamic of, of power and who's in control and who's not at what given point. And I found that really, really exciting for me personally. And it's something that I am hoping to continue exploring with this person in the future. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was silly and exciting but uh, it was, it, <laughs> in the moment it, it was, was good it was it good. was hilarious in the moment i think i laughed all night <laughs> all right well before i let you go this is your chance to shout out all the places where you want to be found hmm. well um mainly my twitter i think that's probably my uh, my biggest focus for social media uh, my twitter handle is at madison winter to i also have an instagram that is the same handle and my OnlyFans is actually under OnlyFans.com slash Maddie Town, which I thought was kind of fun and cute. So 
<laughs> join Maddie Town and follow me on Twitter. And uh, my website is also madisonwinterto.com if you want to find out more about me. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty to stimulate your thinking.